Greetings and welcome to the Servant of the Lord. And I can declare to you Happy Easter, uh, Happy Resurrection of Christ. Uh, even if that is not the time of the year that you happen to find yourself taking a look at this, we know that we can wish one another Happy Resurrection anytime. So we're getting ourselves ready for the Easter season here. And we're going to be expounding on a few texts that will really prepare our hearts to receive the good news once again of the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So my hope is that this time will be well spent in the Word of God, uh, just really trying to understand and trying to grasp uh, who this Jesus is and what exactly he did when he came and offered himself in our place. And so we're going to begin today by taking a look at uh, Matthew chapter 20, uh, verses uh, 20 through 28. And this will be a little different place to start because, as you know, this passage does not fall within the last week of his ministry. It does not uh, fall in any of the trials or the crucifixion itself or even the resurrection. But rather, this is earlier than those things. This is part of his teaching to his disciples. And in teaching his disciples, he revealed himself to be the indeed the servant of the Lord. And so that's what we're going to take a look at today is Jesus as the servant of the Lord. And so what I want to see today is, as we begin this, that we take a look at Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 to 28. Let's begin there. It says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, it's our sincerest desire that these words have their effect. For you sent these words to accomplish your work, and you have promised that your work, words will not come back to you empty. They will accomplish what you've sent them for. So this day in our hearts and in our congregations and in the lives of all those around us, Lord, may these words be made manifest. May they become real to us. And Lord, indeed, work your wonders in your people for your great glory and for the salvation of many. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we have an interesting text, and it's an amusing text in a way, because here we have uh, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, coming to Jesus, but really it's it's their mother coming to Jesus on their behalf, and they're obviously there because they answer the Lord on these particular things. But what I want to focus on first is what this 
uh, these verses say about Jesus, and then secondarily, what it says about us. And so as we take a look at these, I hope you saw a contrast being made. There's a contrast given here between the way the world leaders work and the way Jesus and his people ought to work. And so this is how Jesus expects us then to leave. Worldly leaders expect to be served, but Jesus, he says, came to serve. And this is something that is a profound difference in the ministry of the Lord Jesus compared to the world. He came not to be served, but to serve. And the first thing I want to do is I want to introduce to you this servant motif, the idea that Jesus is this servant. Well, he said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so Jesus is clearly calling himself a servant. And when we see this happen in the scripture, we have something in the scripture happening that's called a motif. And I want to introduce the concept of a motif. A motif is a recurring subject, theme, or idea, especially in literary, artistic, or musical work. Now, we have to recognize that the Bible is unique among all works that have ever been done because it is the actual work of God. But we do have to recognize that it is literature. God created literature when he created his word, when he created this world and decided that it would be dialogue through which he would give commands and reveal himself and make himself known and by which people would communicate to one another that they would receive God's commands, that they would sing praises to God, that all this happens in dialogue. This is something that God set up. And so, of course, he is the best at it, having been the creator of it. And as all of us enjoy good literature, and we recognize good literature has themes that run through it, that recur, that tie the whole narrative together into a singular work with a focused purpose. And we understand that to be good writing. Well, we see nothing less than that in the Bible. In the Bible, we have many motifs, and a motif is something that continues to come round and round again. Let me show you how a motif works by way of this servant motif. There are four what we call servant songs in the book of Isaiah, and one of those is Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 to 6, and these have been identified by scholars as being something that they, they've looked at that they said, hey, Isaiah seems to go on these, you know, we can tell their poetry by the way they're, by the way they're arranged in the Hebrew. And they appear to be songs that Isaiah has uh, been inspired to create. And these songs seem to have as their primary subject, this particular servant of the Lord, this servant that is to come, and all the things that this servant does and all the qualities that this servant has. And so one of those is Isaiah 49. And as we read this, I want you to ask, who is this about? Who is this servant that's being spoken of in the book of Isaiah? I would remind you that Isaiah is a prophet who spoke some seven centuries, six or seven centuries before Jesus came. And in hindsight, after seeing the revelation of Jesus, after receiving the gospels and seeing who Jesus was and what he did, 
we reflect on Isaiah and we see, oh, many of these things were spoken of in Isaiah, were spoken of ahead of time. And we're going to see some of that here. But look what it says here. It says, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. And we'll say, okay, this is interesting. This is the servant, that he is important, that he's been called by God since before his existence. And who is this then? Well, it says, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. And that right away, many people go, aha, I've heard that before. Where have I heard that before? You've heard that in the book of Revelation, in a description of the glorified Jesus Christ. He had from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, it says. So we say, ah, okay, I've solved the puzzle. This is about Jesus. Well, if we go back to Isaiah 49, 2, look what else it says. It says, in the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, and in his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I am glorified. Now, we think, okay, wait a minute, I thought I solved this. I thought this was speaking of Jesus. And here it plainly says that in, in a direct address from the Lord speaking to this servant, You are my servant Israel. Oh, is this about Israel, or is this about Jesus? Well, look what it says in verse 4, and this is very interesting. It says, But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. And we read that and we say, okay, this sounds like Israel. If you've read the Old Testament, you see that it would appear on the surface that their ministry and their purpose in the world was a failure. And indeed, without Jesus Christ, indeed, it would have been. But we look at this and we say, okay, I understand this would be speaking of Israel. Uh, this no longer seems to be speaking of Jesus. For Jesus' life was not vanity. He accomplished all that he came to do. We know he was immensely and totally, completely successful. And yet we have this in the scripture it's going back and forth. Is this about Jesus? Is this about Israel? Well, let's go on to verse 5 and see what else happens. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. So Jacob and Israel, both names for the nation of Israel. And is this Israel then predicting that Israel is going to bring themselves back? Did they Are they both the subject and object of this concept of being brought back? That simply doesn't make sense. It's someone else that's going to have to bring them back. It's someone else that's going to have to return Israel to the Lord. Look what it says here. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says... It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. A light for the nations we do recognize. In Acts chapter 13, this was used to speak clearly of the nation Israel, that they were supposed to be all along a light for the nations. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, when we read there the, the initial calling of Abram by the Lord, where he says that he was going to, that through him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. 
But this is also used of the Lord Jesus Christ by a man named Simeon, who, whom Jesus and his family meet in a temple when Jesus is but an infant. And this man blesses the Lord Jesus. And look what he says. He says that he would be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. So here we see clearly that Jesus was also identified as this light of revelation for the nations or the Gentiles, as we see it here in Isaiah chapter 49. We saw it there in Luke chapter 2. So when we look at Isaiah 49, do we say, is this about Israel or is this about Jesus? And our answer is yes. That the idea, the concept of a servant and of servanthood is a motif in the scripture. It's a recurring theme that comes around again and again and again. There are many servants mentioned in the Bible, but then the ultimate servant that comes is Jesus Christ, that all other concepts and ideas of servitude, of being a servant, of being one who serves someone else, that has been built into the fabric of our reality as human beings here on earth so that God could explain Jesus Christ. Now, if you think about the Bible and you think about other people in the Bible, listen to some of them that are called servants in the Bible. You have Abraham, you have Moses, you have Joshua, you have David, you have even the prophet Isaiah who brought forth these prophecies. Some would say that passage is about Isaiah. And I would say, yeah, it is kind of about Isaiah. It's about Israel. It's about Christ. And all those that are in Christ and all those that serve Christ have this same ministry. But then it also speaks of all the prophets as being servants of the Lord. It speaks of the whole nation of Israel, as we saw, as being servant of the Lord. It even speaks at some point of Cyrus, a Persian king, a Gentile, a non-believer, being a servant of the Lord. And then we come into the New Testament and the apostles are all servants of the Lord. And as we saw in our passage in Matthew all servants of Jesus Christ, all believers in Jesus Christ, are to be servants of the Lord. But the most important servant, of course, is Jesus Christ. And I want to show to you just one aspect of his servitude that he enlightens us to here in Matthew twenty twenty-eight. here. We get back to our scripture where he says that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, what does that mean to us? Uh, his life as a ransom for many has many meanings. And we find those meanings both in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. And let me take a look at some of those for you here. Um, as we see, a ransom for many, his life is given as a substitution of our own. This is related to the concept known as redemption or atonement. And the word that Jesus uses here means that this is a payment designed to set someone free. And an example of this from the Old Testament perspective would be given in, ex in Exodus chapter 21, verse 30. And in that is an interesting the, the, that Moses is being given the law by God. And these are the laws that are going to govern how the people of Israel are going to live when they're in the promised land. 
And one of those laws is if you should have an ox and that ox kills somebody, well, then you're liable for that. You're responsible for that. Now, if that ox, and, and you would have to pay recompense for that, but if that ox had a history of being violent and you failed to put the animal to death when it happened before and then that animal subsequently kills somebody, now this animal with a history of violence you've allowed to live, it has killed somebody, your life then would be required of you. But built into the law is an exception. In other words, you've earned the death penalty for having allowed this animal to live and as a result, it killing someone else. This is good justice here. Uh, but there was an exception put into the law that you could make a payment. If the family of the victim was agreeable to it, you could, you could recompense them. You could pay them uh, for this horrible thing that happened. Now, we know a human life is, is of infinite value because we are the image of God. But nevertheless, a payment could be made and your life spared if the family were willing to do so. So this idea is built into the law. Why? Well, it's to teach us something. It's to teach us that even though the law would have our lives be forfeit, in other words, we would owe our lives, there would be opportunity for payment to be made in place of our life. And so God built this into the law to teach us about the redemption that's in Jesus Christ. The redemption that's in Jesus Christ is simply this. We know that by sin, we have earned death because we have sinned against a perfect holy God, and so it requires the ultimate payment. And so even though that is sacrifice that is owed to God, our very lives owed to him for the penalty of sin, there's this opportunity that payment should be made in some other way. The problem is, what is a human life worth? And what size of a payment would a perfect, holy, and wonderful, truthful, and loving God be worthy of receiving? Well, only a perfect and loving and, and unblemished and sinless sacrifice, Jesus Christ. He came not to be served, but to serve as a ransom for many. And so this concept of redemption or ransom is used to explain God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt and from their Babylonian captivity. And in every case, this concept of ransom, the one being ransomed is helpless in their situation. In the example of the exodus from Egypt, uh, that the Israelites were helpless in themselves to deliver themselves. Only the mighty power of God, his strong hand, was able to accomplish that redemption. And the redemption is also included in the law and the concept of the temple tax. If you didn't pay the temple tax, your life was forfeit before the Lord. It was also indicative of the, the firstborn, uh, the sacrifices given for the firstborn of all the people of Israel. Because if you remember... They, that Israel essentially owed God their firstborn when he brought them out of Egypt. And so they were able to redeem their firstborn with a gift, with a sacrifice. 
So this was later, this idea of Jesus as our ransom is developed more by the apostles in their letters. And we're not going to go take a look at all that, but we're going to stay here with Jesus. We're going to see how he frames these things about himself. Look what he says here in John chapter 10 in a passage known as the Good Shepherd passage. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So a critically important idea is that Jesus lays down his life. He, he doesn't have to give it per se. He willingly gives it up. He says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. He's speaking of the non-Jews, the Gentiles. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And so he has the very authority of the Father himself to do this, to lay down his life and to take it up again. This is critically important, and this requires a response. What he has done in laying down his life is described by Peter in this way. Peter says in his first letter, he says, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Yes, you've been redeemed, but not by money, not by gifts, not by blood sacrifices, but by something far more precious and far more important, perfect and totally unique, Jesus Christ. Look what it says, uh, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians very succinctly, you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. It's very simple. You were such a value was paid for you. That should teach you two very important things. Number one, it should teach you what you're worth to God. And secondly, it should teach you um, and it should inspire you to follow him in the same kind of mindset, the same kind of service. This is why it can be said that Followers of Christ are exactly that. They follow him and they've received this great gift. They follow him out of gratitude. They don't follow him in hopes that they'll earn salvation. They follow him because of the marvelous gift of salvation they've been given. And they also forgive others because they themselves have been forgiven. This is why Jesus can say plainly, if you don't forgive others, you yourself cannot have been forgiven. And this is very true. So unlike earthly rulers, as it says in Matthew 20, 25, who lord it over those that they rule, Jesus puts himself under those whom he serves as a servant. Look how it's stated in Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 5 here, where Paul in inspires his readers with the example of Jesus Christ and his service. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and has bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. No one was ever higher than the Lord Jesus Christ from the beginning of time at, at the right hand of the Father before the beginning of time even. No one ever held higher position than Jesus Christ and yet he set that aside and he came down and took the form of a servant, not just any servant, but the servant that would go to the lowest of the low to give his life for the very lowest of human beings. That's why we can confidently say no one is below the salvation available in Jesus Christ and no one is above the salvation available in Jesus Christ. There is no sinner too wicked and there is no good person too good to need this sacrifice. And so this is the example of Jesus. This is how he is laid out there as the example. And he says in Matthew, he said, it shall not be so among you. In other words, you're not going to be like those earthly rulers that lord it over each other, that are happy to be in a position of power, that use their position to threaten and to coerce people into doing their will. He's like, that's not going to be you. And this is where we step into the picture. He's speaking to his disciples. And all who follow Jesus to this day are his disciples. And it's interesting here to give emphasis and illustrate what he is saying. He uses two different words. He says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And that's a word for someone who might be a hired hand. This is someone who is employed by you to be your servant that you give a regular payment to and they're, they're free to go and find employment somewhere else. They are your hired servant. But look then what he says as an emphasis here. He goes, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave or bond servant. This is someone that's not free to go and serve someone else. This is someone who, who is completely owned. They are property. And in the Roman world into which this, this was stated and this was said, in that world it was legal to own a human being as property. And while we have rejected such notions today, we understand what he is saying. He is saying that the follower of Jesus Christ, should they want to be, uh, should they want to be great in the kingdom of God, they will serve. Should they want to be first in the kingdom of God, they will consider themselves owned by God. And isn't that exactly what Paul says? He says, you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Our greatness in the kingdom is a matter of how strongly we recognize the ownership of God over us and how willing we are to put ourselves in the service of others. The stronger we recognize that we are commissioned to serve, the better 
we will serve. The more use we will be in the kingdom of heaven. And indeed, even as promised by Jesus, the greater our reward will be. These are powerful truths, and it is revealing the very heart of God. I want to go back to Philippians because I want to see, I want to show you what inspired what Paul said. He did this as an example. He said, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And that's when he begins the example of Jesus. Have this mind in you which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now notice this. He says, this mind is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, this is granted to you. This is available to you. That this example of Jesus Christ has been given to you, not just in the sense that it's been held up before you to admire and to see, but the very ability to fulfill this has been granted to you by the changing of your heart in when you were made new, when you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he took you from death to life. He took your heart of stone, gave you a heart of flesh. He took your old sinful desires, and he is changing them over one by one to this glorious and beautiful godly desire to serve, to put others above yourself. What kind of a world would it be if we all had the mindset to put others first? What kind of a church would we have if everyone in the church had the mindset to put others first? What kind of a family would we have if each one of us in our families had the mindset to put others first? That is the vision of God that is the eternal destiny of his people. And so if you're not feeling it now, don't expect you're going to feel it later. Repent of your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ that you can be changed from the inside out. That in moving from death to life and having Jesus Christ be your ransom, take your place on the cross that he will give you a new life and a new heart and he will instill in you this leadership principle of being a service to others and a service to the world. We were called from the womb to be part of the success story, the service of the world, to serve God, to be involved in the family business, so to speak, because what God has done is he has to all those who receive Christ, he gives the right to become children of God. And we become involved in the family business. We become co-heirs with Jesus Christ himself in the very work of God to move people from death to life, to bring God much glory and to further his kingdom. This is what it is to truly know God to humble ourselves as Jesus did and to join him side by side in serving God and serving humanity. This is the highest honor. This is the highest calling. Now we have several encouragements for you and I want to share those with you. Uh, by way of encouragement, understand these things. First of all, Jesus Christ came to serve. Jesus Christ came to serve. And remember what it said there in the 
book of Isaiah, celebrate, you coastlands of the sea, celebrate that Jesus came to serve, that we had a need and he came to provide for that need. Will you serve him? Will you turn to this one who humbled himself, who came from the highest high, took on the lowest low to provide a way for you to be saved? And I want you to think about if this God, if this this Yahweh, Jesus Christ, came and that he offered himself in this way to make payment for your sins with no other way of you being saved, what shall he do should we neglect such an offer? What shall he do if we should turn him away? Let's not find out. Let's accept this great gift that he has given some of you will remember, and we think about this during the time of, of Easter, because it was the very night that Jesus was arrested and taken to be crucified that he washed the feet of the disciples. Washing the feet in those days was the job of the lowest servant in the household. It was the worst job there was, because everyone wore sandals and everyone walked almost everywhere they went. And so, you know, you don't have paved roads, you don't have carpeting, you've got dirt everywhere. And so the feet were dirty. And the lowest servant got the job of washing the feet of everyone at the end of the day. And Jesus does this with his disciples. And when he gets to Peter for his turn, Peter's like, oh, no, 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 you're too good to wash my feet. I'm, I'm paraphrasing for sake of illustration. And Jesus says, look, if, if you'll not have this, you'll have no part of me. And Peter says, well, then wash it all. And Lord Jesus says, no, you don't need it all washed. You've already believed me. You just need the feet washed. And Jesus did this, and it says in the gospel there in John, he did this as an example that we should serve one another in that way. Not that we have to wash each other's feet, but probably worse than that, we have to serve each other in every possible way by providing for one another's needs, by loving one another, by holding one another accountable to follow the principles of the gospel. This is indeed the hardest service that we may render, but one of the most important. He gave that as an example to us. Will you refuse him? Would you refuse him the opportunity to wash away your sins? thinking that you're too good for it, thinking that you don't need help, and despising Jesus. Well, like he said to Peter, if you have not have this, you'll have no part in him. So he came to serve and he continues to serve. He continues to serve by saving many people. And what I want you to do this holiday season, I want you to think on these things. Think of this, that seated at the right hand of the Father before the foundation of the world was Jesus in all his glory and all his perfection. And he came here and he walked among us and he was tempted in every way as we were. And yet he didn't sin. And then he offered himself upon the cross in our place for our sins. And this is our message of salvation. So think on this first for yourself. And then think on this secondly for all those of your family and friends and the people around you in your community and your friends and neighbors and how much they desperately need this because without it they will utterly perish and they will go on to a death that is eternal. So think on these things. Pray about these things. Let us close together.
Father God, we praise you for bringing us together. We thank you so much for this message of Jesus Christ. And Lord, it is our sincerest desire that all who hear this will repent of their sins and will trust in you for their salvation because it is only in Jesus Christ that we may be saved. But Lord, in your great wisdom, you have woven into the very fabric of our reality what we need to know about Jesus. Just open our hearts to these things and let us see these things and let us then seek the scriptures for the truth to clarify what you have shown, what you have said. May your word accomplish what you will this day. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. And I thank you for joining me today. And I ask you, uh, if you have any questions or comments or you need help finding a church in your area, anything like that, please contact us, whitethronebaptist at gmail.com. I'll answer those emails personally and you will receive a response from a real live human being that is concerned about you. If you merely want us to pray for you, send those prayer requests. We will pray. God bless you.